G'day and welcome to We're Only Here Once. I'm James Wiley and these are my stories. In Chapter 2 of 1993, we're off to Barbados. Hope you enjoy the ride. Barbados was a complete fluke. I'd known for months that 1993 would be the year I travelled back to Sydney. I'd left my job, shipped home six years of memorabilia and tried to tick off some final items on my must-do-in-Europe list. But I'd left the actual details of my journey home completely undecided. I knew I'd go west through the Americas somehow, and, whether by air or sea, I'd need to cross the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. But it wasn't until I got back to London from Paris that I finally went shopping for options. At first it seemed the budget-friendly Aeroflot flight to Cuba might be best. The Cold War had been resolved a couple of years earlier by Russia's attempt to open up and modernise, but nothing could eradicate Aeroflot's plummet airways reputation. Then British Airways had a flash sale of the last few seats on a flight to Barbados at the end of the week. I couldn't believe my luck. A few months before, Mike and Margie, the parents of one of my Irish prep school students, had told me, if you're in Barbados in January, look us up. They knew I was planning to travel west from Dublin to Sydney sometime in the new year, but I'm sure they never expected me to rock up. And neither did I. But when I phoned them to say I'd be in Barbados on Sunday, they told me to come and stay for as long as I liked. This was a better start to the trip than I ever could have planned. In my last days in England, Mark, my old school friend who'd moved to London years before, lent me his VW Golf to drive to Oxford to say a final goodbye goodbye to Grandpa, Lucy, Mallory and Jilly. On the Friday night, some lunatic with a knife, yes, the second in a fortnight, attacked Mark's car while it was parked safely under a streetlight just off Woodstock Road. They slashed the soft top roof and one of the tyres, and they took a few CDs and some coins from inside. When I telephoned Mark to tell him, he said, No worries, it'll be covered by insurance. But a few minutes later he called me back to ask if the golf clubs were still in the boot. What golf clubs, I said, and there was a pause. Never mind, he said stoically. I forgot I'd left them in there. When I got back to London I found there'd been custom made for him in St Andrews and Mark wouldn't take any money in compensation. I'm still thinking of a way to pay him back. The nine-hour flight from London to Barbados was the biggest jump towards Sydney I'd make for the rest of the year. It was also also the biggest jump in seasons and cultures. As the humid tropical air enveloped me at the plane's exit and the exclusively dark-skinned airport staff welcomed me to their island, I felt as much a foreigner as it was possible to feel. In a corner of the world where the majority of their population is descended from slaves brutally transported from West Africa 400 years before, I looked forward to losing my luminescent Irish winter pallor as soon as possible. Given the amount of luggage I had and the quirks of the, pub- of the public bus system, a taxi from the airport to Mike and Margie's house in Gibbs Bay was the only viable option. My connection with the Afro-Caribbean taxi driver got off to a rocky start when I insulted him by trying to negotiate the price. However, once we got going and he discovered I was Australian, we bonded over cricket. Unknown to me, a few hours earlier, the West Indies national team had beaten their arch-rivals Australia in the final of the one-day series played in Melbourne. The driver had sat up all night listening to every ball on the radio, and as he drove, he recounted every twist and turn of the match as if he'd been playing himself. The timing of my arrival couldn't have been better. 
As we rattled up the west coast, the bright, fragrant warmth of the island flooded the old Chevrolet's open windows. We arrived after a trance-like 40 minutes, and I wondered if I'd been pranked. Mike and Margie's house was more an estate than a holiday home, and here, up the drive, came the house staff to meet me. Carrying my bag and surfboard, they led me through the tropical garden, past the pool and up the wooden stairs to the balcony beside my room. Through the casuarina trees, the Caribbean stretched from gleaming aquamarine to its sapphire horizon. Tiny waves whispered a cartwheel's distance from where our garden turned to White Sand Beach. Mike and Margie will be home in an hour or two, Mr James, one of the ladies said. Can I bring you a beer? You little ripper. That afternoon, I discovered I'd stumbled into the biggest week of 1993's Bajan social calendar. This was Robert Sangster's annual amateur golf tournament at the Sandy Lane Resort. Unknown to me while I was teaching their son, my hosts were an integral part of Sangster's legendary Irish horse breeding and racing circle. On holiday from being parents at a straight-laced private prep school, Mike and Margie were hilarious. Mike raced about the place in his mini-moke, promising any conceivable wrangle with the police could be solved with a jovial, good constanoon, Astable. This apparently would get everyone laughing and all would be forgiven. He might have been right. Since I was now suddenly their house guest, they included me in everything. I was too late to get a start in the golf, which was just as well. But every night they included me in the epic dinners at way out of my league restaurants like Carambola, La Cage Fall and 39 Steps, where every member of the circle celebrated the wins and losses of the day. Another night the Sanksters threw a party at their house. Well, estate, it sold a while ago for something like $50 million. I nearly committed what would have been social suicide if I'd had a social entity to kill when I accidentally danced with Robert Sangster's wife. After half a song, I realised who she was and made my excuses. It was bizarre to be involved in conversations and debates with these people from a world so far removed from my own. Perhaps they found this nomadic hippie schoolteacher with no dress sense, attempting to find his way round the world on the smell of an oily rag and no prospect of an income, just as fascinating as I found them. I was honoured to be as welcome as they made me feel. Among the hundred others, there's no doubt the peak moment in the miles-out-of-my-own-orbit genre came when I discovered Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page, undoubtedly one of the 20th century's greatest musicians, and quite possibly a god, sitting directly in my eyeline at the restaurant dinner table next to ours. How should I react? Obviously, asking for an autograph was completely the wrong thing to do. Jimmy was at a table for two with, it must be said, beautiful company. He didn't want to be pestered and I didn't want to be that guy. He didn't need a complimentary drink or an extra pudding from a random diner and I couldn't have afforded to pay for them anyhow. Then it hit me. This would be my simple gift. I'd pretend I didn't know who he was. I congratulated myself on this decision. How many others would have thought to give instead of take? Through all three courses, I kept my eyes from roaming to his table. But a final challenge came as I returned from the loo several magnificent wines later. Jimmy was walking straight toward me. His rock star gait exceeded all expectations. He was taller and his arms even longer than I'd thought. If we weren't careful, our shoulders would touch. Our eyes met for a second, probably more. He smiled and nodded. I smiled and nodded back as if he was any other bloke down the pub on a Sunday afternoon. I think I may have offended him. Walked on 
While the week in Gibbs Bay far exceeded any expectation I might have dreamed up for the start of my journey home, my gaze had already been distracted. On my second day, Margie lent me her car to explore the island. Armed with Surfer Magazine's surf report on Barbados, I charted a clockwise course around the coast. Before the age of Google, Google Maps and cameras that live-stream vision of nearly every coast on the planet, the surf report was the only source of information about foreign surf zones. Each report consisted of just two yellow A4 pages of typewritten information about that edition's destination. To prepare for this year's trip, I'd spent a small fortune, via bank check and international post, on about 30 editions of the surf report to give me intel on just about every surf coast to which the winds of fate might take me. The surf report on Barbados advised there were good waves on every coast, but the best of them was called Soup Bowl on the east coast at the little village of Bathsheba, an hour's drive across the island from Mike and Margie's place. Halfway through my first surf at Soup Bowl on that second day, I knew I had to live in Bathsheba for a while. On the way back to Gibbs Bay that afternoon, I discovered Matilda, an empty yellow wooden shack with a picket-fenced lawn facing the ocean, just a minute's walk from Soup Bowl, and I knew I'd found my next home. But when I eventually tracked down the landlord of Matilda, a gruff old Afro-Caribbean man in a cabbie's hat named Mr Bostick, I made the fatal error of trying to bargain on the price. You'd think I would have learnt from the first day's taxi debacle. If you want to argue about the rent, you can find somewhere else to stay, Mr Bostick said abruptly, and he walked away from our conversation with a wave of his hand. Oh crap, I'd really crashed the car. After a restless night in Gibbs Bay, I drove back over the hills to Bathsheba, eventually found Mr Bostick, and made a grovelling apology. Oh, you're from Australia, he said. We beat you last night. We beat you by a run. Oh, your last batsman nearly gave me a heart attack, but we beat you by a run. He expected me to know, but shamefully I didn't, that a few hours earlier the West Indies had won the fourth test in Adelaide by a single run after the Australians had nearly pulled off a miracle comeback win. I don't know how he would have treated me if the West Indies had lost, but after describing every twist and turn of the final day's play, he agreed to rent me Matilda at his price, and we shook hands as friends. I was home. Within an hour of moving in, the silhouette of a massive dark rasterman filled one of the windows that looked out to sea. I was playing my tiny traveller's guitar in the front room. What you play, he said quietly when I rose to greet him. Taking this accurately, I think, as my audition for acceptance into the village community, I chose Bob Marley's Get Up, Stand Up. Under the pressure of his presence, it was probably the best I've ever sung it. When I stopped, he deadpanned, You can play, and left. He never came to visit Matilda again, but I think I saw him leading his goats through the village a couple of times. In his place, however, came a handful of the other local boys, all Afro-Caribbeans, who invited themselves to hang out on Matilda's Matilda's front veranda every day. At around mid-morning on my first day there, they sauntered off the road, crossed my front lawn and onto the veranda, with its unrivalled view of Parlour Beach and the only road through the village. They introduced themselves, but avoided eye contact and kept their distance, even while we shared the same space. If they needed, they helped themselves to my food, but never too much of it. They were kind of friendly, but I understood that, even though I was paying the rent, 
This was their place. I was just a visitor. They called me a soft howley, which was the local term borrowed from Hawaiian surfer slang for a white visitor who didn't cause any harm. It was kind of denigrating, but approvingly so. These guys were heavy. They would have killed me in a fight. They were poor and most likely always would be. They lived hand to mouth and, when necessary, I expect they stole. Another surfer, Chuck, a staggeringly unabashed racist from Florida, turned up in a smart hire car, rented a fancy house up the hill and started calling the local boys off waves at his first surf at Soup Bowl. Within 24 hours of his arrival, Chuck was robbed of everything except the clothes he was wearing. I don't know if it was the guys I knew or somebody else. In retrospect, I reckon my house must have become a protected area. If they or anyone else stole from me, I'd be forced to leave the village. Then they wouldn't be able to hang out at Matilda anymore. I was proud to be a soft howley. Mr Bostick warned me about only one of the locals. Watch out for Snake, he said. He bite ya. Sure enough, within a couple of days, Snake came to the front door. Alone, as ever, for the other locals avoided him to ask if I needed any dings in my board fixed. There were a couple of cracks on the rails, and I thought it would be wise to support local industry, so I gave Snake the job. Secretly, I hoped that my standing as a soft howley with the other local surfers would keep him honest. Snake asked for payment in advance so he could buy the materials, he said. I agreed to give him half the fee, then pay the balance when the work was done. He vowed to return my board fixed first thing the next morning, but an hour after dawn the next day, the surf was cracking, but there was no snake and no board. One of the boys on the beach gave me directions to where Snake lived up the hill. When I found the simple house, there was my board, neatly fixed, lying on the dewy grass outside. Snake was inside with another guy, a pimply, pasty, dodgy-looking white American. They plainly hadn't been to bed that night. Snake took my cash, the balance of the payment, and handed it straight to the American. From a small plastic bag in the American's pocket, they each chose a tiny rock. In turn, they lit these rocks in a pipe fashion from alfoil and an empty matchbox. The small rocks popped and cracked and made a strange smell, and after sucking up the smoke, each of them sat back stunned. I made my excuses, told them the surf was pumping, and fled to the beach with my board. The day I'd met Snake at Matilda, he had told me he was one of the original gang of local boys who had copied the tourists and taught themselves to surf. It was hard to believe. I'd never seen him anywhere near the waves. But a few days after the crack incident, Snake came to Matilda to ask if he could have a go on my board. It was a reach to trust him again, so I walked with him and my board to the soup bowl. Snake paddled out in filthy jeans instead of board shorts, but as I watched from near the rocks, it was easy to see the remnants of his addled skill, this despite the ruin his life had become. Mark Holder, on the other hand, not only danced with the waves, he flew. The other local boys, especially Zed and Arlon, surfed every day. Mark only appeared the first day it got big and nasty after a big storm had passed far away to the north. These occasional ground swells were far bigger and more powerful than the everyday wind swells I'd surfed so far. I was on the beach resting after an early morning surf that had tested the limits of my ability when this Afro-Caribbean bloke with sun-bleached dreads jogged past me and paddled out. 
With his hair still dry, he chose his first wave and took off 10 metres further up the reef than was humanly possible. He airdropped, turned square off the base and disappeared as the wave turned inside out. He reappeared at the speed of sound and levitated onto the roof of the wave, skating weightlessly for longer than physics would allow, before airdropping down to reconnect with the face. It was the best surfing I'd ever seen. The next day the waves were even bigger and I was giving it another crack. For the first hour, with Mark's encouragement, I scratched into a few of the biggest waves I'd caught in years. From close up, his surfing was even more spectacular and artistic than the day before. As the tide ran out, the waves got steeper and the other surfers went in. James, he said, every wave's like this, and he made a cliff shape with his fingers. But I didn't heed Mark's warning. A wider one crested out the back, and I paddled out to meet it, turned round and took off. It was a long way down, much, much further than I'd anticipated. I arched my back, trying to force the inside edge of my board to reconnect with the vertical face. The wave formed a second sky as I fell. When I finally hit the water, it snatched me up and hurled me into the reef. Thank God my butt cheek took the impact. I walked up the sand, a legend. My housemate, Joy, told me it was as big as a truck and she wouldn't stop talking about my bravery. But I wasn't proud of overstepping the limits of my ability. It wouldn't be the last time that year. Later in my stay, Mark asked me a favour. Two old friends of his were flying in from a neighbouring island. Could I help collect them from the airport in my rental car and show them round? No worries. It was an honour to be asked. At the airport, Mark's friends turned out to be two French girls, Valerie and Marie. Valerie was from Martinique, an island not far from Barbados, and Marie was... Holy schmoly, I recognised her. The beautiful wife of the world's best surfer at that time, Tom Curran. Mark had entrusted me with the safekeeping of the First Lady of Surfing. For a few days, we day-tripped round the island, surfed soup bowls somehow by ourselves, and on Valentine's Day, we all shared electric blue waves at a south coast point called Freights. The other member of our party was Joy, my housemate. Joy was one of a very small societal subgroup in those days, a woman who surfed. Sure, there had been a Women's World Surfing Champion every year since 1964, but to the average surfer, women who surfed were very rarely seen. In fact, come to think of it, before those days in Bathsheba, I'd shared just one single session with a female surfer. It was at Fairy Bower at Manly one morning in 1983 when I should have been at uni. And what a surfer she was. It was Pam Burridge, then aged about 18, and she was ripping. It was no surprise she won the Women's World Championship a few years later. Somehow the 1970s to 1980s society I grew up in didn't see surfing as something women did. Why ever not? What was not to like about sharing waves with women? Why was surfing some sort of man-shed? Come to think of it, up until the 1970s, there were ladies' lounges in many pubs so men and women could drink in their own company. These were still the dark ages of gender equality and social inclusion. 
These were also the days when middle-aged drunks were a familiar sight, even in daylight hours. Were these the men who had fought in World War II and returned to society brutalised and broken? Had they been brutalised by their fathers, who had been brutalised by World War I? Was it the example set by the older males that led the younger surfers to belittle and intimidate any woman who attempted to share the waves? A recent documentary called Girls Can't Surf explores this period in surfing and how women eventually gained the respect of their male peers. Anyway, back to Joy and Matilda. Joy was Filipino-American, originally from Virginia Beach, but she'd moved to Hawaii to surf. She'd found work at one of the posh hotels on Kauai and was living her dream until September 1992 when Hurricane Iniki flattened the tourist industry and left Joy long-term unemployed. With months to kill before she could return to work, Joy set out to make the most of her layoff by surfing the world, or as much of it as she could before her savings ran out. Joy was walking a tightrope in a few ways. First, she had to watch every cent she spent. Second, she was an outsider in a chauvinist culture. And third, she was determined to retain emotional independence. For the first months of her trip, these challenges had been met by sharing the adventure with another Hawaiian female surfer. But when her friend returned home, Joy needed a new travel partner. With no surfing females available, she chose me. I was honoured to be her travel partner, but it was a bit awkward for, for both of us. I had to suppress the truth that I found her attractive. Yes, I know these days we're all so evolved and can negotiate these delicate situations as if we're picking apples, but this was 30 years ago. It was hard sharing these wonderful, unique days with a woman who I had to keep my distance from. It was tricky for her too. While she sometimes wanted to exercise her independence, she didn't want me to feel neglected and exploited, especially as she knew that my presence saved her from the advances of other males who wrongly presumed she was my girlfriend. In our time together, several other men tried to get close, but she artfully kept us somewhere between hand and arm's length. It was a complex situation, but I so valued our time together. Each day began with a glassy early morning surf at Soup Bowl. By mid-morning, the trade winds blew in like clockwork, 10 to 20 knots from the northeast for six hours until the late afternoon calm. By 4pm, the windswell had settled into sets, and we'd surf long, powerful, glassy waves until dark. The last of the windswell would be there the next morning, then the cycle would begin again, a cosmic wave machine. In between surfs, we'd eat, rest, play music, talk and write diaries. No one went to town and there was no work to do. The furthest we went was Mrs Marshall's bakery up the hill for bread and currant buns, or the rum shack for beer. Most nights we'd be asleep by ten to be ready for the early surf. Only one night we stayed up till after midnight. We built a fire on the beach in front of Soup Bowl and watched the full moon rise. When I suggested we go for a surf, the local boys warned me, the duppies will get you. Duppies are water spirits, the souls of those who've drowned apparently. I thought they were only winding me up, and I dared them to come out with me. Only Arlon took up the challenge, but as soon as he was out the back, he freaked out and raced to shore in genuine fear. Somehow I survived another few minutes before surrendering to superstition. Maybe the sharks in Barbados are nocturnal. Duppies is the name given to one of the island's wildest waves, breaking a long way out to sea from steep cliffs on the northwest coast. The local boys came from the one, for the one-hour drive in my car, but they wouldn't dare surf, even though the water was mid-sunny day crystal clear. 
Federico from Argentina caught the best waves that session. Maycox was another right point we surfed, and when another big groundswell arrived from the north, there were perfectly shaped powder blue waves on Gibbs's reef just up the beach from Mike and Margie's house where I'd stayed the first week. In near darkness that evening, I split the peak of our last wave with the drummer from the Tom Tom Club. On Saturdays, the locals played cricket on every available patch of semi-level turf. Each bowler steamed in off a long run, and each batsman tried to hit every ball beyond the horizon. Success and failure were met with rowdy cheers or heckles from the women and children round the boundary. On Sundays, the church next door to Matilda rocked with a hundred voices in three-part harmony. One day, Mike and Margie came to lunch at Matilda and had such a good time they stayed for dinner as well. I was glad to offer some hospitality in return for all they'd given me in my first week on the island. After a fortnight, I drove Joy to the airport for her flight back to Virginia. On the way, she suggested we stop at one of the beaches on the southern shore. We talked for an hour or two, then watched her flight disappear into the sun's glare. Joy ended up staying in Barbados for a fortnight longer than me. When I left, she told me to phone her in a couple of months to see if we might meet later that year somewhere else in the world. Barbados had given me a decade's worth of adventures and waves. If I'd had to go straight home to Sydney, I could have lived with that. But knowing it was unlikely I'd ever see this corner of the world again, I bought a Leeward Islands air transport excursion ticket that would take me to any three of the other Caribbean islands. Though it felt like gluttony, I chose Tortola, Guadeloupe and Puerto Rico. And what about those other 20 countries between the Caribbean and Australia? I didn't need to be back in Sydney for another 10 months if I could make my savings stretch that far. In the next chapter of 1993, the journey continues in Tortola and Guadeloupe. If you'd like to see some photos that accompany this story, you can find them at jameswiley.com and there's a link in the show notes. The music you've been listening to is written by me and played by my band The Nomads with guest harmonica by Mitch Marsden. Thanks for dropping in. See ya.